as we prepare for our Wednesday evening service, I want to invite you to turn to Mark's gospel. Now, if you're like me, I appreciate Mark's brevity, uh, 16 short but powerful chapters that uh, Mark gives us in this gospel to help us understand, often attributed in our synoptic gospels as the first or the original gospel uh, that the other two's borrowed from, depending on how you position yourself in that theology. Many believe Mark wrote his gospel first, and then Matthew and Luke added to that and give us more detail that we see in the gospel message. But I want to share with you, picking up in chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, the title of our message tonight, I call it The Coup for the Kingdom. And let me describe that, what I mean. If you've ever been around long enough to watch the news or to see world events transpire, uh, there's often in, in what we would consider to be third world countries a coup d'etat an overtaking or an overthrowing of the government where one faction puts themselves in power by getting rid of the dictator or the president or the government or the military leader, and they overthrow that person so they can rise to power and they take power. When we go to the Old Testament, we see our book of kings and we see over and over the sons that have become the king and then they're killed by someone else and then a new king takes the throne, then they're killed by somebody else and a new king takes the throne and over and over and over. Well, how does that relate to you and I? I would argue that there's a coup d'etat every single day in the life of a Christian where there is something that is competing for our attention to take our eyes off Jesus, to dethrone him from being the Lord of our life, the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. And all that we do, there are things trying every day to overtake our own faith as we follow Christ faithfully as his servants. And I want to share with you tonight what we see in Mark's gospel on the very night of this evening, which would have been Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, depending on what scholarship you follow on this issue, where Jesus was indeed a coup d'etat to overthrow him as being the Messiah. But they were not faithful despite their earthly attempts. So let's turn our attention for a moment to the gospel, chapter 14, the gospel of Mark, and we'll read verses 1 through 11. Follow along in your translation if you like, and I'm reading from the ESV. So picking up in verse 1 of chapter 14. And it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said themselves, to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like this, like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whatever the gospel is, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I invite you to pray with me over God's word. So Father, we thank you for the privilege of being reminded of this faithful woman who poured out the alabaster flask at great cost to her. As you shared with us, she's done what she could to honor you, to anoint your body before burial. And Father, I pray now that you would help us to understand how to recognize what is going on in our life as we seek to serve you and as we fight off this spiritual warfare of things that are trying to help 
overthrow you from being the King of kings and Lord of lords. And Father, we pray that you help us to be faithful in all things as we remember this week in the great sacrifice, the great love, the great faithfulness, and the great return that we have hope in of you coming for your church. Father, I pray upon your return we will indeed be found faithful. Bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we thank you, and I want to share with you tonight as we get started a few things that we're going to, to see in our message outline. I've kind of given you an outline of what we're going to discuss this evening as we examine the coup against the king, that what goes on with the religious leaders, and then the king amongst the commoners. You ever seen one of those kingdom movies, and the king was really good about making friends with the common people, and all the other people on the king's staff would snub their noses in the air every time the king would get off his horse and walk amongst the common people? And his nobles would be indignant, raising their noses in dis, dis, disgust of what the king was doing. But the king loved his people. Thirdly, we're going to see about the anointing of what this lady does for Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to look at this great betrayal of what goes on in the life of Christ on this very day as he came to seek and save that which is lost. So I want to invite you as we go back to our sermon for just a moment, we're going to look and examine the very beginning passages of this message and I want to share with you, first off, what we see here in this coup to overthrow the king. It's interesting in verses 1 through 2. Look with me again in your Bible. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Isn't it amazing the amount of things that go on in secret? When you think of all the evil in the world and the things that go on in our own lives, I've often told people that I've had the privilege of leading and my own children, nothing good happens after midnight. Be home. Nothing, nothing great is going to take place in the hours of darkness. Why? Because as we see in this own text, that evil often lurks in the secret, in the darkness of what's going on. Where does the coup occur? Often it occurs where secrets are being exposed and the text tells us here that they were afraid to even do anything before the Passover because so many had welcomed Christ into Jerusalem, singing Hosanna in the highest, which means save us, O Lord, laying down the palm fronds and the branches as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, rides into the town being hailed as the Messiah, and those religious leaders would see him coming in and began to plot in secret how to overthrow the king of kings and Lord of Lords. And we may wonder why would they do such a thing? Because Jesus didn't conform to their style of religion. You ever met anybody like that, that you don't conform to what they think you ought to be, so they immediately discredit you and try to smear you or slander you or something else? Well, we see Jesus experience that very thing from those who were supposed to have been the very chosen people of God, who were looking forward to a Messiah, but when he showed up, he wasn't what they wanted. So instead, they discredited them. What do we see in these verses? I want to share with you a few things that we seek. Number one, three truths to help us expose unrighteousness. If you've ever had a 35-millimeter camera, you remember the good old days of winding the film back. And if you're like me, every now and then you've wound it and wound it and wound it and wound it and thought everything was good, and then you open the back of it, and all of a sudden, poof, it all pops out like a spring. And all of a sudden, all the exposures in the film that you took are now ruined because they were exposed too much to the sunlight. Isn't it funny how that's what happens when sin is exposed for what it is? All of a sudden, the sunlight, the heat, and the rays of the sun begin to 
purify that through its own exposure. Isn't it interesting that the Word of God, when we began to expound upon it and examine it and confront the things of this world with Scripture, the very same thing happens spiritually. We begin to expose sin for what it is, and it no longer has any value for those trying to use it for unrighteousness. It's interesting here that the scribes were indeed lurking amongst the religious, those scribes, those religious leaders, those who were seeking to kill Christ. Notice first off that they were from within the religious sect. I've often heard it said that no one will hurt you worse in life than the church. Now, if you think about that, it's a deep statement. But unfortunately, I have found as a pastor that to be a very true statement. Uh, because the church of all people should know better. And I think Jesus, as he's walking amongst Jerusalem, as he's there in Bethany in this Last Supper, before he gets there, he knows what is going on. He already knows what's going to happen. And he knew that his chosen people would rebel against him, crucify him in just a few days. That's why he's sitting here in the house of Simon the leper now, receiving the anointment of this woman of the alabaster flask, and even makes known, leave her alone, for what she is doing is a good thing, for she is anointing my body beforehand for burial. Now, it should come to no surprise that Jesus understood these things, because all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus, throughout the entire process of the Old Testament, Jesus was there amongst his people, seeing the stiff-necked, the hard-hearted issues that were going on as they rebelled against God in the wilderness, as they were not allowed to come into the promised land, and throughout the Old Testament scriptures as his nation Israel is put into Babylonian captivity because of their unrighteousness. Jesus expected it to happen, but it hurts when it lurks amongst religious people. I often tell folks when they look at me and say, well, you're a pastor, you must be pretty religious. I said, actually, I'm not. And as you can imagine, they scratched their head. Wait a minute. You're a pastor. You've got to be religious. I said, I'm not religious. I'm a man who has a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a difference between religion and relationship. Religion will send you to hell quicker than anything. I'd rather be a heathen than be religious. But thank goodness we have a relationship through Christ, and I can be saved instead. Amen? What a wonderful thing that we have. The unrighteous lurk amongst religious folks. And righteousness number two thrives in the shadows unrighteousness thrives in the shadows. Why do I share that with you? Because that's exactly what was going on here. Notice they were planning and plotting and scheming behind the scenes, doing everything under the table, if you will, so no one else would know about it. Because they knew if they made their cry in the public, they knew it would not have been supported. Matter of fact, there probably would have been an uprising and a riot against what they were trying to do. Because those same people were still singing Hosanna in the highest. Save us. O Lord, O King. Unrighteousness thrives in the shadows of our lives as well. You ever notice when you allow a certain sin to creep back in, a little situation in your life that you make a compromise for, then all of a sudden things start getting difficult in areas that you thought you had a, a battle won already and you allowed it back in and you're back to square one again, having to repent of that sin and seeking God's strength and help to get over that again, to continue your relationship with Him without broken fellowship. But thirdly, notice that in the text, they say how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. Unrighteousness schemes even against the people. 
the very people Jesus came to help. Here are the religious folks who should have been the very ones proclaiming the truth of the gospel, who should have recognized the Messiah, were indeed keeping people so far from, from Jesus. Jesus would address that issue in Matthew chapter 23, and he would call them, you brood of vipers. You cross the oceans to make one proselyte, meaning a follower of Judaism. And then he goes on to say this, and you make them twice as fit for hell as they ever were. Man, I don't know if it gets any more of a scathing rebuke than what Jesus gave to religious folks when they didn't have the relationship with God in proper order. But let me share with you the, over, the best defense, I would call it. The best defense against evil is an offense for righteousness. The best way for you and I to overcome evil in our own lives is to make a stand for righteousness and gird ourselves up and to be ready for those things and pursuits that God would be honored by in our daily life. You see, there's a coup waging to overthrow the King of kings and Lord of lords in your life and in your heart and in my life and my heart. And if we don't understand that, we can quickly find ourselves on the wrong side of a coup d'etat where something else has become the king of our life. I'm reminded of Solomon, who the Bible tells us that he was not only the wisest man that had lived during that time, but the Bible describes King Solomon as the wisest man who would ever live. And when you get to the end of his writings in the wisdom literatures, you will find that Solomon had turned away from Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God Almighty, and began to follow the other gods. It was a coup d'etat for Solomon's heart that took over in the last years of his life were anything but glorifying to God. Boy, let that not be said of ours. May we stand faithful with an offense for righteousness. Secondly, I want to share with you, though, not only the coup d'etat, but what this king is that is amongst the people. What would cause them to to worship him? And And I offer that the text gives us three perspectives of some different people that are in front of the king and uh, that are there with him. I want to look, look at verses 3 through 5 again with me. And while he was there at Bethany, now Bethany is near the Mount of Olives, and he's in the house of Simon the leper. Now stop there for a minute. Put your finger on the word leper. Don't worry, you won't catch leprosy by doing that. But notice Simon the leper. There was a reason they called him the leper. Anybody know why? Because he either had leprosy and had been healed by it, Or he was known to have been a leper, and once a leper, always a leper in this culture. Unclean, unclean they were required to holler out and stay away from others as people passed them on the streets. But Simon the leper, go figure of all people. Simon the leper who would have been ceremonial, unclean, unfit to go to the temple and worship because of leprosy. And look where he's at. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, As he was reclining at table, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly. Notice they're saying it to themselves, by the way. Too afraid to say it in front of Jesus. But he already knew the thoughts of what was going on in their heart. Why was the ointment wasted? Wasted like that. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. You see, 300 denarii would have been the equivalent of 300 days' worth of wages. One denarii would have been enough money to sustain a person for a day in that culture and in that time. 
Here they had 300 denarii that it would have been worth enough to get a person through an entire year for the most part of what they need to survive. And here they're ridiculing this woman for what she did. Why was the ointment wasted? See, they still didn't, they still didn't have the perspective of what was taking place. And Jesus will go on and clarify that. But let me share with you three perspectives of the people that are in the presence of the king. Number one, this leper who would have been a social outcast. Notice Jesus is reclining at table with him. Now that table during that time frame wouldn't have been the tables that are in most of our homes. It would have been a low coffee type table. They'd have been reclining on the floor, if you will, laying on their, their elbows. Uh, I love the pictures of the Lord's Supper from, from our, our Roman Catholic churches and other denominations. They got everybody seated at a nice table with white tablecloths. Everybody's got their fancy robes on, and they all have their places, and the great feast is fixed before them, and Jesus in the center of the picture with the shining halo. Everybody seen that picture? That's probably not what the first supper was not like. When the Lord took the Passover meal with his disciples, they would have been reclining in that upper room, very modest, meager furnishings, laying against one another, very casual, legs touching one another, disciples kicking each other, saying, quit touching me with your feet. Your feet are dirty. Even though Jesus washed them, you're still dirty, right? You can imagine the banter that was going on as they're dipping their hands in the communion dish, taking food and, and the meal from the Passover and sharing it and passing it around the table. No forks, no utensils, not too many things for them to eat with proper like we would do. They were just fellowshipping with one another. And then Jesus took the bread and the wine, and I'm sorry, Corey, I won't preach your message for tomorrow, but uh, they were having this, this dinner and here Jesus is in the Simon the leper's house. Now, in his home would have been considered unclean as well. Everybody in the home would have been considered unclean. Everyone around him would have been absolutely despised by religious people. But here's what Simon the leper did. Notice first that the Simon the leper opened his home to Jesus. He says, Jesus, you can come in here. Because Jesus, I may not be welcomed amongst religious people, but you're welcomed in my home. He offered himself and everything that he had. He offered his provisions for Jesus to share. I don't necessarily agree that the problem with our society today is that we've taken Jesus out of the school or that we've taken Jesus out of the courtroom or that we've taken Jesus out of the Supreme Court or that we've taken Jesus out of our government. I think the number one problem is that we have taken Jesus out of our home. And when Jesus returns in the homes of his brothers and sisters, the homes of those who call him Lord, and when Jesus becomes the focal point in the home, I believe firmly that Jesus will spread and become the focal point again in our culture, in our society, in our school boards, in our government. When we're raising up and growing young children to sit and sing praises and worship like we heard some of these little ones today singing the praises to our Lord and Savior. You see, Simon the leper opened his home and said, Jesus, you're welcome to come here. Jesus went and reclined with him. Simon offered all that he had to give to Jesus. Imagine Simon entertaining the King of Kings, the Messiah in his home, one who would have been unclean and unworthy. What a beautiful picture of the king as he's sitting amongst the commoners. But secondly, we see another person amongst the scene. We see this woman that comes upon, upon the scene, and 
Not only a woman, but a woman who brings a gift and all that she had, the best of what she had. This woman would have been considered also an outcast in society, not a man. Matter of fact, in a legal court of law during this time frame in this culture, her witness and her testimony would be invaluable. It would not have been any good whatsoever. Isn't it amazing that the Gospels account for us that the first people to notice that the tomb was empty on resurrection morning was the witness and testimony of a woman? Why is that so significant? Because the testimony of a woman would not hold up in a court of law during this time frame. Why would they share that if it wasn't true? Because you can't hide truth. When it's true, it sticks, doesn't it? You see, this woman welcomed, she was a welcomed interruption. Notice she didn't just keep her place like good women at that time would have in the back in the kitchen. No, she comes and recognizes Jesus for who she is, for who he is, and begins to worship him so much so. Now, we don't know, but we can speculate how long she had saved up for that alabaster flask of pure nard, what its real purpose would have been, why she would have had this anyway, why it would have been there and prepared. And we don't know the answers to all of those things, but we do know this, that Jesus himself, the Messiah, says what she has done is a good thing, and she comes to prepare my body for burial beforehand. We know that she shares that as a preparation, a prophetic witness of what's going to take place in just a few short days as Jesus is indeed nailed to a cruel Roman cross, crucified, dead, and buried for the sins of the world. And this woman had a glimpse of what she would do for Jesus as she poured that oil over his head. What a beautiful thing. It was a welcome sacrifice by Christ, so much so that in verse 9 of this same text, Jesus says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And here we stand some 2,000 years plus later, and we're still talking about that woman and the alabaster flask. You know, I believe one day we will see her in heaven. There will be a special place, and we'll get to see her, and we'll get to see Simon the leper, and we'll get to have a relationship and think, man, isn't this awesome? We were still talking about you 2,000 years later. You rock, girl. She can be like, I know. I was a little embarrassed when Jesus said that back then, but I kind of come to like it. Thank y'all. What a blessing that Jesus gave to her to remind us of just how great a sacrifice that she did. Notice the text tells us, after they were indignant to it, to what she was doing, where Jesus told her, tells her that she did all she could. But notice thirdly, though, the disciples, those who were followers of Jesus. Sometimes we miss the big picture of what God is doing. Even in our attempts to be faithful, we get caught up in the details and the minutia of little things, don't we? We get caught up in the the work of the church, or we get caught up in the programmatic aspects of the church, or we get caught up in the legal issues of how we're supposed to do this or that, and we start focusing on these things, and before you know it, Jesus is just a sideshow to the other things we call our church life. Here, this reclining at table with Simon the leper and this woman, the other disciples were missing the big picture not recognizing what he had been telling them in John's gospel from chapter 13 forward to chapter 19 about his departure from them. 
And here Mark's letting us know again how often we don't see the big picture. They were also indignant, the Scripture says. Why was the ointment wasted? Man, could you imagine someone saying that Jesus wasted his life on the cross of Calvary for you and I? Boy, isn't it worse when a church member says, what a waste that person is, that their life's not valuable. But yet Jesus died for that sinner as well. It's interesting how in our timeline of faith, we can get so far from our pre-salvation days that we forget how wretched and miserable our own sin was before a holy and righteous God, before we accepted Christ and received forgiveness. And folks, that's the same forgiveness that God is still wanting to extend today for those that are in our society like Simon the leper, like Betty the prostitute, like Bill the bum, like Doug the drug addict, like Alvin the alcoholic, killed three people in a family in a car because he was driving drunk. You know, God still wants to extend forgiveness and salvation to those people as well. And you know how he does it? He uses his church to proclaim his truth. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What a beautiful thing we can be as we help share the gospel to others. Misguided priorities often derail us. You see, they weren't even basking in the moment of what was taking place prior to the Passover meal, what had already been prophesied about Jesus, that he would destroy this temple and he'll build it up again in three days. They're missing all the big picture stuff. They're just focused on the tangible things of a terminal world. Misguided motive. Why were they even there in the first place? Sometimes I wonder myself as a pastor, what's that person thinking? What am I thinking? What's my motive behind why we're doing what we're doing? Am I truly fixed on Christ or on other things? Am I fixed on building my kingdom or my church, my community, my neighborhood, as opposed to building his kingdom? Isn't it beautiful that we have a king that walked amongst the commoner that wasn't too good to come down to the very lowest of lows that left heaven's throne and took on bodily form to experience pain and hurt and hunger and thirst to know what you and I experience and to share in that and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the King Jesus that we serve. But turn your attention to verses 6 through 9 for a moment, how the king is indeed anointed and his death is imminent. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Now they all probably said, oh, he's talking to you. I didn't say nothing. I'm glad I didn't say nothing. But he already knew what was going on in their heart. Already knew what they were thinking. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Look in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Three observations we see. Number one, that there's a reminder about priorities in our life as well. Notice worship was the first and foremost thing on her mind as she came to Jesus 
Jesus recognized it and said, why are you bothering her? You're caught up in all the other stuff. And what she is doing is she's recognizing who the Messiah is and she's recognized what's really important to worship me at all costs. Matter of fact, to worship me by giving her very best, something that was precious and valuable and dear. Jesus will go on and and describe that in verse 8. But he reminds us of the priorities, and he reminds the disciples that worshiping the king is first and foremost. Every now and then, pastors share with me their discussions that they have with members of their church, and and, uh, I had one recently that was shared with me about a member who didn't feel welcomed in the church. And that pastor reminded that member that, well, I'm sorry that you didn't feel welcome during our service, but let me give you a little insider secret. Do you come to Sunday school? No. Do you come to any other activity? No. I said, well, worship service isn't for you anyway. It's for us to worship Jesus. So I'm sorry you're not being worshipped during worship service, but our attention's fixed on the king. She said, oh, I never thought about it that way. It's one thing to understand our place when we worship the King of Kings. It's one thing to be friendly with one another, but man, when we gather to worship the King like this woman did who gave that expensive nard, she wasn't worried about socializing with all the other people around the King. She was fixed on the King himself. And I'd argue when we keep our eyes fixed on the King, we're not so busy looking around at who's not talking to me. We'll realize what worship is and we'll get lost in this King who gave it all for you and me. What a beautiful picture. A reminder of our priorities. But also notice, secondly, there's a recognition of the contribution. She has done what she could, Jesus said. Jesus didn't give a metric of she did more than someone else. Isn't it wonderful that our king doesn't compare us to anybody else in the kingdom? That the Lord of Lords and the great book that will be opened one day, the Lamb's Book of Life, where our name will be found if we are in Christ Jesus... It won't be compared against Pastor Corey or Pastor Virgil. I won't be compared against your record or my record. The only record that will matter will be the record of whether or not we are in Christ Jesus. But there is another book. Matter of fact, there are books, plural, that the Revelation tells us about that will be opened one day. And those who are not in Christ will give an account for why they chose to refuse the Messiah. Why, they were too busy about everything else instead of worshiping the king. But notice how Jesus recognizes her contribution and says that she has done what she could. See, he knew her heart. This costly 300 denarii bottle of alabaster nard, she gave it all for him. She has anointed my body beforehand. It's often how, it's interesting how often I hear excuses why People can't serve, or we can't do this for ministry, or why, well, I just, you know, I just don't feel it, Pastor. Well, there one day you will feel something, I promise you. Um, But it's interesting that she didn't need to feel a certain way. She recognized who the Messiah was, and she gave it all. So many make excuses why they can't serve. So many attempt to hide or hinder those who desire to serve. You ever seen that happen? Well, I think I should go to the choir. No, Betty, you shouldn't go to the choir. You can't sing that good. I'm like, we got to have a talk with her. Because that, you know, you ever seen somebody do that? Somebody all on fire for Jesus? 
and uh, the, the cold water committee comes over and pours it on them and puts it out, makes them feel small or insignificant, that they don't have what Jesus needs, that their contributions aren't enough. Jesus said she's done what she could. I wonder if all of us gave what we could, how much more we could do for the kingdom of God. How much more Jesus would look at us and say, well done. Well done, my church. Often our focus is on the temporal instead of the eternal. You see, the disciples that were there were worried about the money that they could use to feed the poor, which is often more of a disguise for the real motive of having more money for whatever they wanted to do. Jesus says, no, she's focused on the eternal while you're fixed on the temporal. See, they were worried about life here and now, and she anointed Jesus for his death, not for his life. She recognized what was to come. But lastly, we see that there's a remembrance of faithfulness that Jesus proclaims for this woman. And I believe our faithfulness will be remembered one day when we stand before our Savior. And he looks through that book and he finds our name written in there, Virgil Dwyer. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Welcome into your master's rest. What a beautiful image that will be one day. I was once told by a man, he said, you know, there's nothing sweeter than you can say to a person than to call them by their name. One day we will hear our name. And then we will hear that new name that will be given to us. Only Jesus knows. But a remembrance of faithfulness is guaranteed according to the Scriptures. Jesus will remember His own. He will come for them. But lastly, I want to invite you to look at verses 10 through 11 with me. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Man. Let me share with you a few observations. Number one, being close to Jesus is not the same thing as being found in Jesus. There's a lot of folks that are close to church, that are around the religious things of the sacraments, that are around the religious culture of Christianity in, in our world. They're close to Jesus, like Judas was that night. But they are far from being a child of God. Judas would leave that time in the house of Simon the leper. And he would go and he would find those religious leaders. And he would offer to betray the Lord Jesus Christ, for 30 pieces of silver. He was among Jesus all that time. He saw the works that the Messiah did. That John said, if you do not believe that Jesus said, if you do not believe I'm the Son of, the man, the Son of God, believe in the works themselves. Judas was there when all that was going on. Judas, by all intents and purposes, would have been considered a disciple of Jesus a Christian, a follower of Christ, by just the sheer proximity of being around the things of what we would call the church. You know anybody like that? All around the things of the church, but they still have yet to truly encounter the Lord God Almighty. No fruit going on outside the church, but yet in the secret things of darkness, they're plotting against God. 
Being close to Jesus is not the same as being found in Jesus. Being close to Jesus is not the same as having your your name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Notice in verse 11, though, the second thing I want to bring to your attention. There will always be, there will always be someone there to discourage you from doing what you need to do to honor the Lord your God. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money and they sought an opportunity to betray him. There are no shortages in the Christian walk of people that will discourage you and try to tempt you with other things and distract you and try indeed to form a coup d'etat to overthrow the king of kings in your life. It happened to Judas and he fell for it. There will always be someone uh, to encourage your failure. You ever notice that? You may have encountered that in life. There's more people that will encourage your failure, that tell you, oh, you can't do that. Oh, Bob, he walked the aisle, gave his life to Jesus. Yeah, he'll be right back in the gutter next weekend. Watch, it'll happen. I remember a testimony at a great revival one time where a young girl all week long had been praying for her daddy. Her daddy was an alcoholic and abusive and would come home and do things that just ought not be done in the home to his wife and to the children. And and she would pray, pray, and pray, and pray, and pray. And then all of a sudden, one of those revival nights, that man showed up at the revival. And long story short, he gives his life to Christ. He walks down the aisle, and you could see everybody in the congregation gasping. <gasps> Is that him? Yeah, he's coming. It won't last. He'll be right back at it. About a month or two goes by, and they're giving testimonies at the church, and this little girl stood up. And she says, Preacher, I want to I share my testimony. And we're thinking, the, the congregation is wondering, what in the world, what, what could she have to share? She says, I don't know how God does it, but I know one thing. When my daddy got saved, he's not the same man he used to be. Because my daddy is home with my mama, and he's loving us. He's not drinking anymore. He's not beating me anymore. My mommy and my daddy aren't fighting anymore. Pastor Jesus saved my daddy. What a tremendous testimony from a young girl that didn't say, oh, this won't last. No, she put her hope and faith that what Jesus does doesn't get undone. What a beautiful thing. Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody were walking down the street during a great campfire revival in England. And after a revival night, the next evening, they were walking down one of the alleyways. And again, Spurgeon looks over and Moody looks over. And Moody sees one of the young men that had walked down the aisle the night before and gave his life to Christ and cried and sobs and tears and all that good stuff. And Moody pokes Spurgeon in his belly and says, looky there, Spurgeon, there's one of your converts right there. And Spurgeon, with his wisdom, says, you know what, Moody, you must be right. He must be one of my converts. Because if he was a convert of Jesus, he still wouldn't be in that gutter. See, sometimes we can follow men, but when we follow Christ, he indeed makes us fishers of men. He indeed cleans the catch and transforms our lives into something we could never make it on our own. Don't follow a preacher. Follow the gospel. Follow Jesus. Lastly, I'll share with you the good news. God's sovereignty overall reigns supreme. God's sovereignty that night of understanding what she was doing for him and God's sovereignty of knowing the Passover meal that he would celebrate a short time later and the death that he would bear on the cross of Calvary on Good Friday as he would stretch out his arms on Golgotha on Calvary and he would give his life for you and I. 
to Telestai. It is finished. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He would give up his life to seek and save that which is lost. What a beautiful reminder. All sin is an inside job. Betrayal is an inside job. What Judas did to Jesus came from the inside. And I would argue all sin in our life is an inside job trying to get our attention off of the Messiah. Trying to make us feel unworthy of the salvation that he's given us. Trying to remind us of all of our faults and all of those things that make us not worthy to be a child of God. But here's what I know. God is sovereign and his word stands forever. And what he has done will not be undone by anything of this world. What a beautiful thing to be found in Jesus. And I hope here tonight, every one of you that I see every week, every Sunday, week in and week out, and if you're at home and if you don't know Christ, it's never too late until it's too late. And when it's too late, you'll never get another opportunity to confess Jesus as Lord and Messiah, as Savior of the world. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to invite you tonight, if that's you and you don't know Christ and you've been around the things of Jesus all your life, but you don't really know who Christ is, you've never accepted him, you've never placed your trust in faith, you've never followed through in believer's baptism, you've never committed yourself to discipleship of following Jesus, if that's you tonight, I I plead with you during our time of invitation, walk up here and find me. And I promise you a couple things will happen. Number one, I will pray with you. I will pray with you and help you receive Christ. If the Holy Spirit is calling you into that relationship, nothing can stop you from doing it. Let me pray with you to accept Christ. And He will change you. The other thing that I know will happen is that this church will wrap its arms around you. And we will disciple you and we will teach you. We will love you. We will comfort you. We will counsel you. We'll even correct you with love in Jesus' name to help you be all that Christ has called you to be for him and for his glory. So, Father, we pray now that you remind us, as you did with Judas tonight, that being around the things of God is not the same as being a child of God. So, Father, help us to put our faith and trust in you, not to be distracted by the things of this world, not to worry about the cost of what it takes to worship you, but, Father, to give all we have in recognizing who you are and what you've done and what you continue to do in the lives of your people, and what you've called us, the church, to do in our faith and our obedience, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize and to teach them to observe all things that you've commanded us. And Father, we thank you for this reminder in me week of this Passion Week of all that you are preparing to face for our salvation. Father, we thank you, we love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand as Pastor Corey. Nope, we're not, we're not singing tonight. I'm sorry. Matter of fact, Craig's going to lead us in song, right? Mike. And Mike's pointing at John. John's pointing at Foster. Foster's saying, huh? Right? We're not going to sing tonight. I'm sorry. I'm going to preach a little longer. How about that? We'll do that tomorrow night. God bless you. Let me close this in prayers. We dismiss tonight and invite you to come back tomorrow evening at 7 p.m. Get here a little early, though, because you can see the house is packed. So please get here so you can reserve your seat as we participate in the Lord's Supper tomorrow evening. Let me pray for you as we dismiss. So, Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy. And, Father, we thank you for the excitement that we have. While it was a time of torment and torture, 
and pain and agony. Father, our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for the privilege of calling you our Heavenly Father. We thank you for the relationship you've given. We thank you for the sin that's been forgiven in our life. Not the sin we committed then, not the sin we committed today, but even the sin tomorrow, you offer the forgiveness for each and every man and each and every woman here to remain in fellowship with you, to be a child of God you've called us to be. Father, help us to be obedient to that. Help us to fight off this battle of spiritual warfare that's fighting for our souls and our hearts uh, to be drawn away from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Father, we thank you for this evening. I pray your protection upon each and every person here as they travel home. Bring us back safely tomorrow as we do this in remembrance of you, the body that was broken and the blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen.